For those of you who don't know me, my name is David Glick. I am a pain physician, I guess. I've been in practice for about 25 years, and um, I am taking a sabbatical these days from clinical practice. But what I wanted to do for you with respect to this session, it is part of the pain educators forum, so let me take a step back. And part of the purpose for this study, or for this session, was that we want to take a critical look at some of the different diagnostic tests that we use for, for looking at our pain patients, largely musculoskeletal. But the fact of the matter is, we use these things all day long, don't we? So if I sat up in front of you, and this is one of the basic learning, fundamental adult learning theories we have, if I stood before you and started talking about stuff that you use every day in its most basic form, you'd be bored out of your tears and you'd leave the room. And it doesn't really give us any value. So what I decided to do was put a little twist on it, and I wanted to give you more of a critical look at some of the tests that we commonly use every single day to make you think twice about the way that we use them and give you some clinical pearls that can essentially be very helpful when it comes to using them in the future. And this particular session has actually done very well for making changes in the way that services are provided far and above outside of people who have attended pain week. I can explain. A couple of years ago, for example, we had a radiologist who sat through this session who realized that I identified a major flaw in a protocol for doing um, MRIs of the cervical spine. He went back to his facility, which was, which was, I believe, in Knoxville, and they changed the protocols for doing cervical MRIs, where the differential diagnosis was neck and upper extremity pain, for every single patient ever to go through that facility again. So to me, it, you know, it's very rewarding when we can make a difference like that. So let's see if I can live up to that kind of standard and give you some of that information today that's kind of valuable. So I have nothing formal to disclose. Our objectives for this morning are pretty, well, this afternoon, wow, it's getting late. It's been a long day. Our objectives for this afternoon are pretty simple. We want to be able to look at some of the common studies that we use, like I mentioned, for differentially diagnosing our musculoskeletal pain disorders. But I want to look at the clinical utility with respect to these and look at ways of enhancing the way we look at these studies to improve our clinical yield. Are you guys familiar with the Choosing Wisely program? Came out a couple of years ago. It's kind of cool because the whole idea for this was they picked out and ultimately picked out a whole number of tests and treatments that are commonly used that are potentially overused. So the goal was well, they had these original nine organizations came out and said, okay, each organization has to come up with a list of five things that are overutilized with respect to tests or treatments. So my favorite one was from the American College of Family Practice Physicians, which basically said, you know, don't do MRIs for back pain unless there are red flags present. Since those guidelines came out, has anyone tried to order an MRI even when you need it immediately and the insurance carrier won't approve it because now they want you to wait six weeks anyway? That's nuts, because what if there's red flags present and they disagree? So it seems all the wrong people pay attention to this stuff. When the president of the, American, of the American Family Practice Physicians board member and president of the panel basically said that, look, these tests can not only be potentially unnecessary, but they can be really harmful to our patients because you often end up going down a red herring path where you end up with more tests and treatments that are unnecessary. And you end up, can end up with a cascade of problems that are potentially even fatal, and that is no lie. So here, let's go to, well, basically, they have this huge amount of lists so far. So you have over 450 different recommendations. They've had 20,000 blogs and 400 mainstream articles supporting this, figuring that this can help change the standard of practice. And guess what? People still don't pay attention to it. But this is one of the things that I wanted to really call to your attention. This particular part of Choosing Wisely was a study where they surveyed 600 physicians and said, why are you using these tests even though you think that they're not of any value for your particular patient? Well, you had 50% said because they're worried about malpractice concerns. Well, guess what? Having provided expert testimony in God knows how many malpractice cases, we don't see suits for this kind of stuff. It's not gross negligence. I assure you, and that's a very tough standard to prove. The other two, though, I thought were kind of important were these two groups when you put them together, the 23 and the 25, it's because the patient is insisting on the test or because they wanted to keep their patients happy. So 50% of the time, it's the patient demanding a test. 
that ends up having them go down a red herring path that can end up with something that they don't need. And I had one of those cases, a serious case, just a couple of weeks ago, which was insane. Now, if it's you as the clinician, and you're doing it just because the hair, hairs on the back of your neck are standing up, and you just want to reassure yourself, I'm okay with that, because you know what? That's a legitimate reason, isn't it? But we all have to remember who's running the show, and all too often, unfortunately, it seems that it's the patients. What is the most important tool when it comes to evaluating a patient? It's not the diagnostic test, is it? It's the history and the clinical examination. We added the experience of the clinician because that's why we all went through residencies and things like that, correct? You know, while we, it, once we've seen it, we're able to recognize it the second time or the next time. So the patient comes in and tells you a story about what's happening, how it's happening, why it's happening. That's the history. Based upon the history, you're thinking about the potential causes of the problem. So then you do a problem-focused examination to rule in or rule out what you think is causing the problem, and then you essentially provide this working clinical diagnosis and provide a treatment or establish a, a, a program for treatment. If you need additional information, that's when we look at diagnostic tests, correct? But the most important tool here is the clinical examination. Well, I've been in practice for over 25 years, and looking at some of you, I think you're pretty well seasoned and have probably been in practice just as long as I have. Have you seen reimbursements really go up in 25 years? No, but your overhead has. So you're forced to see more and more patients within the given period of time just to keep the lights on, correct? So it seems more and more, I even see orthopedic surgeons just relying upon imaging studies and no longer doing exams on their patients. And they're about to go into surgery because of this time factor. Insurance companies don't seem to value the time. Patients don't seem to value the time. Well, that's problematic because the whole art to delivering the science of medicine is what? Time. I pointed out a study when we did the Pain Week 101 session the other day, which is really intriguing. There's a, a, all the, the, the final analysis of the data should be coming out shortly, where they analyzed populations of patients that had been in the concierge model, where you're actually spending more time with patients. So in the concierge model, they're showing that this greater time with patients is resulting in higher quality of care, lower numbers of medications, lower numbers of chronic conditions, lower numbers of testing, lower numbers of everything, and overall better health. So you say, well, that's only because the people who can afford it, and there's a socioeconomic component of this, and there very well might be. But in classes of patients where they're actually providing concierge care to even lower socioeconomic patients, if you will, status patients, the outcomes are the same. And the reason why you're seeing those populations is because the one exception to the Affordable Care Act is called direct-to-primary care. So as an employer, I can provide a direct-to-primary care program, which includes a concierge practice, essentially, and that would qualify as an affordable health care plan, which is much higher care than you get for like a bronze plan, right? So let's just jump right into it, especially since we're going to be short on time. Everybody uses MRIs here, correct? Yes? Do you know what an MRI is? Basically, it's a big magnet. So what we do is we stick a patient in a magnet, we use this radio frequency field that goes in and energizes all the water molecules, all the proteins in your body. Then you give it a second radio frequency field to escalate it a little bit more, and then you turn the field off. And as those molecules are coming back to a resting state, they give off energy, and that energy is recorded by the imager, and that's what gives us our MRI. Okay? That's not too complicated, is it? It's a great physics equation, really. So what you end up with are something like this. All right, now here's an important question. How many of you, well, we already know how many of you use MRIs in practice. How many of you rely upon the interpretations only and don't review the actual films yourself? I say film, but we don't use films anymore. Okay, how many actually look at the MRIs themselves? We got a few, which is really great. All right, I always look at every MRI myself on my patients, and there are several reasons for that. One is, well, I should point out that I'm taking a sabbatical from clinical practice these days, so I don't see too many patients. That being said, I saw five patients between, uh, I think it was October and December, and three of those in a row had real serious pathologies on their MRIs that were overlooked and likely responsible for their pathology. Well, that's problematic. I saw one just last Thursday when I saw the patient. I might even put that MRI up just to show you so you would agree that it was an incidental finding that was overread and led to a serious cascade of events afterwards. 
So I always review my imaging studies with the patient as well because by the time the patient sees me, they have already been to see God knows how many different people. So I have to make sure that the patient is going to have confidence in whatever it is I'm saying because it might be different than what they've been told. So I'll review the studies with the patient. So here's MRI interpretation 101 from the patient perspective. What I do is imagine taking a slice of tomato, a, a tomato and we slice it up from left to right. And then we pick up each slice and look at it one at a time. That's kind of given us our slices, which are our sagittal slices. Then we glue the slices all back together and form our tomato, and then we cut it from top to bottom and do the same thing, looking at one slice at a time. That's our axial slices. Make sense? All right. So the primer for reading MRIs yourself is there are two primary imaging weighted images, if you will, or filter settings. One is T2, one is T1. And there are others, but these are our primary. So in a T2-weighted image, think H2O, T2, anything that has a higher water content is brighter white. Anything that has a higher fat content is darker. Make sense? And on a T1-weighted image, we flip that around, and it's the reverse. So T2 images are on the left or the right? Left. And you can tell because what color is the CSF, which is high water content? White. Make sense? Okay, so what we've done here is we have a sagittal slice that's dead center in the middle of the spine. So you can see what you have here is, looks like bamboo, right? Vertebra disc, vertebra disc. Everyone okay with that? What happens when you get down here to L5, S1? What do you see? A little bit of a herniation, yes? All right, so the history with this patient is that two weeks before this MRI was taken, the patient hurt their back and ended up with back pain radiating down to a lower extremity. So the MRI says disc herniation. Make sense? Okay. These little lip-like changes over here are, it look like white lips around the disc space. Can you see that? That's called a modic change. Modic was a neurosurgeon who described the stages of degenerative disc disease. How long do you think it would take that to have become degenerative disc disease at that level? Would it have had to take more than two weeks? Yes. So right away, the timeline to me as the physician should be saying, ooh, yes, there's a disc herniation, but ooh, maybe that's not the pathology. Now, it could be there was a little bit of a herniation there, and maybe the injury just pushed it over the edge and now it's symptomatic, but at least the red flag should go up on the back of your neck and say, ooh, that might not be what's symptomatic with respect to this patient. But do you ever see anything on the interpretation that says, ooh, modic changes? Not too often. Some people are nodding yes, which means you guys got a great radiologist. Thumbs up for that one. So let's look at the axial slice at the same level. And you can see here that there's, I can't get my hand to stop shaking, there's a little tiny protrusion or herniation, and it's central, right? It's not really pushing on the nerve root as it exits, and it really isn't compressing the thecal sac, although it is abutting the thecal sac. And if you look at the T1 weighted image over here, you can actually see that it's abutting the S1 nerve root but without compression. Keyword there, without compression. So if it's not compressed, well, maybe this is a patient that could be treated conservatively. Right? This is a patient we might think of an oral steroid or an injectable steroid or maybe physical therapy or manipulation because it's a non-compressive lesion. Everyone agree that that's possible, plausible? So right away, timeline's a concern. Non-compression says, ooh, conservative therapy might be a great idea. But if you contrast that to a patient such as this, now this patient has a frank nerve root compression as the nerve root's exiting the IVF. You know what we call this? Here, frank nerve root compression right here as it's exiting the IVF. Got that? We call this a do not pass go, do not collect $200 patient. Because with active nerve root compression, is this patient going to respond to an epidural? Not likely. They might get an anesthetic effect, but it ain't going to last long. Are they going to respond to an oral steroid? Are they going to respond to physical therapy, especially if it's restorative-type therapy? Absolutely not. Manipulation? Probably not. And those, and those therapies themselves could be, could be potentially putting the patient at risk, couldn't they? Because they can make that even worse. You ever hear of a brown saccades or something maybe causing greater compression because you're going to have the patient doing more activity than they should be? If you saw this pathology, would you say, okay, let's do six weeks of conservative therapy before taking the patient to the OR? It's like, no, this is one of those cases where 
you know what, let's do that minimally invasive discectomy as soon as possible because the sooner you do it, the better the likelihood the patient's going to have a great response. So this patient ended up having a minimally invasive discectomy very quickly, I think it was less than a week, and did very well long term. What happens when you see something like this? So we have patient A on the left and patient B on the right. So the two images on the left here are the same patient. Let me give you the history. This is an early 20-some-year-old woman who works in a warehouse, bent down to pick up a box, and developed back pain, now radiating down to one of her lower extremities, down the back of the leg, all the way to the foot. Common presentation. We've all seen it, right? All right, so the examination findings in the record are pretty minimal. And I kid you not, the motor examination was dorsiflexion of the toes, and the physical examination was a quasi-straight leg raising, and I say that because I don't think it was done right, and, that, and there was a deep tendon reflexes. And that was pretty much the examination. All right? So after a little bit of conservative therapy and nothing happened, they ordered the MRI, which is right up here. So the, this is a worker's comp case, and the MRI interpretation, even though you don't see the whole study, but what would you surmise when you look at that? Pretty damn normal, isn't it? Everything looks to be intact. So the MRI comes back and says normal, and the patient's complaining of severe pain. Normal MRI, what do you think the physician's thinking? Medication-seeking malingering. The insurance carrier thinks the patient's malingering. The physician thinks the patient's medication-seeking. See how the ba delicate balance works? All right. So. I get the patient as a second opinion referred by the workers' comp insurance carrier to prove that they're malingering. But the clinical examination, when done right, shows evidence of a full-blown radiculopathy. Now, I cheated because I did a somatosensory bug potential study, which we'll talk about at the end, which correlated my findings with the examination. But what this patient had was an L5 radiculitis, inflammation of a nerve root. And the nerve root can actually compress itself because if it becomes inflamed, just like twisting your ankle, the IVF is only so big. So you can actually get the nerve root to compress itself when it becomes inflamed in the confines of the IVF. So remember I said clinical experience of the physician is important? Well, I've seen this before. Inflammation of a nerve root, non-compressive lesion. If you're going to pick a patient that's going to respond to conservative therapy, this would be wouldn't it? So... We, now that we knew what the pathology was, cheated and just did a transframal epidural at L5 and knocked it out. Worked for us. Here's the competing patient. Now, this is the guy on the left. So the story here is you have a 65-year-old gentleman who hates physicians, hospitals, doctors. They're just, they scare him. Something happened when he was a kid and would never go near a doctor. He was totally asymptomatic until falling off of his tractor and getting an immediate onset of back and lower extremity pain with the same exact clinical presentation of our 20-some-year-old woman. Okay? So he goes to the ER, and the ER does an MRI, and this is what they come up with. So would we all agree that there is a single focal pathology here at L5-S1? The description of that is spondylosis at L5-S1, correct? Degenerative disc disease with spondylosis because you've lost your disc height. And if you look in the back really closely, you can see that there's some extruded disc material. See that right here in the back? A little bit of extruded disc material. I can't keep that from shaking. But the total material in the back posterior area of the disc is not enough to make up for that entire volume of the disc that would have herniated out, is it? Which tells you what? It's been going on for some time. All right, here's what happened. The ER doc really never did a good thorough examination of the patient. And we heard a really good ER session, I think, on Tuesday, which I loved because there were some great case studies in that. So he does the MRI and says, that's bad. You're going to need a fusion. And the orthopedic, there was an orthopedic surgeon in the ER came in for a trauma. So he calls the surgeon over. The surgeon, who's a great guy, took it for granted that the ER doc looked at the patient. So he goes over and does a consult and tries to tell the patient, we're going to have to do surgery on this. The patient gets scared and signs out AMA. The surgeon called us and said, can you do me a favor? Mr. Smith is a really nice guy. If you can just get him in here, see him, and do something for his pain, it'll give me some time to really talk him into why he's going to need surgery. So it's, sure, no problem. You know, we have a really good working relationship with this doc. I was okay with that. Patient comes in the next day. I walk into the exam room. I walk out 10 minutes later and tap my partner on the shoulder and said, I think we have a hip fracture. So the patient was having surgery that Thursday, but to repair a hip fracture. 
So what you have is a focal pathology on a patient that's asymptomatic as far as their back. Interesting thought, isn't it? So basically what I'm telling you is you can have a pathology on an MRI, but that doesn't tell you whether or not the pathology is clinically significant. You have to get that from your clinical examination. Interesting thought, yes? So it may be possible that you have a compressive lesion, which is one of those do not pass go, do not collect $200. But from the standpoint of non-compressive pathologies, there's nothing to state whether or not that pathology is clinically significant. And you should look for some of those other cues like um, modic changes and things like that to give you the timeline because those are things that help you. And then the flip side of that is just because you have a normal MRI doesn't mean that you have an asymptomatic patient. It proves nothing. Your examination is still what's most important. So here's another case. We've all heard of facet injections, right? And by the way, how many of you have ever seen on the MRI inflammation of a nerve root or radiculitis on that interpretation? Very few, isn't it? I've reviewed probably 20,000 MRI interpretations in my entire clinical career, and I've seen it zero. But yet, we treat that all the time, don't we, with epidurals, neural steroids, and things like that. All right. How about facet inflammation? We all have, have heard of facet-mediated back pain, have we not? We've even heard of facet injections, two kinds, medial branch blocks, where you block the little medial recurrent branch of the nerve that goes to the facet joint, or intraarticular facet, where you inject the facet joint itself. How many of you have seen inflammation of a facet joint on that MRI result? A few, and I admit I have too, but only maybe a dozen times out of 20,000. That's pretty scary, because how many times do we do facet blocks? They're almost like ubiquitous, aren't they? Here is inflammation of a facet capsule. You see the difference? Here's the one on the left, which is actually the right side, because remember, left and right sides are flipped over on the axial images. Here's the one on the right, which is actually the patient's left. Can you see that nice white fat line in the middle of the facet joint, which is actually an atypical facet joint as well? Can you guys see the little white line in the facet joint over there? So this patient has a facet inflammation, but it doesn't say it on the, it actually says it on the MRI report, which was great. This patient had a series of facet injections, medial branch blocks, with even RF afterwards, with no change in the clinical presentation, because they were going after L4, L5, L5S1. Well, basically L3, L4, L4, L5, L5S1. Anybody want to tell me what level they think that might be at, based on the MRI? It's higher up. I heard L1, L2. It's actually T11, T12, so you were close. We give you partial credit for that one. So this patient actually had inflammation of the T11, T12 facet joint, which is a heck of a lot more common than you think. And if you come to the back session on Friday, I'll show you why. So we wanted to do an intraarticular facet injection. You know what the insurance carrier said? I paid for facet blocks already. I'm not paying for any more. Yeah, but you paid for them at L3, L4, L4, L5, L5S1, and there's nothing down there on the clinical exam. So they finally said, okay, we'll do it, but just this once. So we did an intraarticular injection into the facet joint and actually did manipulation immediately following and made the patient's facet pain go away. So facet-mediated pain, nothing that says you can't see a facet problem. And if it's on there, that's one of those cases where it probably is symptomatic. Here's one for you, which I truly love. Everybody remember the brachial plexus? That's the spaghetti junction of nerves that pretty much gives you innervation to the upper extremity coming from the cervical spine. What are the nerves that are innervating the brachial plexus? C5 through T1, correct? Everybody agree? All right, where is the C6 dermatome? Thumb and first finger. Where's C7? Middle finger. Where's C8? Fourth and fifth? I saw that middle finger. I got that. <laughs> He's like... So C8, fourth and fifth digits, correct? All right, what are the, what's the nerve innervation for the intrinsic muscles of the hand? No. All the intrinsic muscles of the hand that allow you to do abduction, abduction of their fingers are C8 and T1 only. That's myotomic innervation, not dermatomal innervation. Okay? Even C8, T1 for opposition of the thumb. C8, T1. What are all, what's the nerve innervation for the muscles responsible for grip? C8, T1. C8 and T1 nerve roots come together, form the medial cord of the brachial plexus. A component then goes straight, becomes the ulnar. Another component gives off a branch that goes to the median. 
So the ulnar nerve wraps around the medial aspect of the elbow, comes around and innervates the muscles responsible for grip. So grip is C8T1. Okay? So if you have numbness and tingling in all of your fingertips, what dermatome would that be? Is it likely that it's all dermatomes? Or could it be a myotome? Think proprioception, not nociception. Just food for thought on that one. So let's go back to this. So if your patient has numbness and tingling, especially in the fourth and fifth digits, maybe the medial aspect of the forearm, or has weakness with grip strength, what nerve innervation are we suspecting? C8T1. Do you know that more than 50% of the cervical MRIs stop at the body of C7? Well, the C8 nerve root comes out below C7 at C7T1, and the T1 nerve root exits at T1T2. And 90% of the cervical MRIs do not include T1. So the moral of the story here is, if you, if you ever have to order a cervical MRI on a patient for the differential diagnosis of neck and upper extremity pain, what are you going to write on the order? Please include axial imaging through T2 or to include the C8 and T1 nerve roots. Because otherwise, you could be looking for a problem over here, but the MRI stopped over here. I can't tell you how often that happens. And it's not just MRIs. It's CT, CT scans as well. My favorite study to date was the husband of a radiologist who had a boating accident and ended up with a problem that ended up being a T1 distribution. And the CT scan stopped at the body of T1, of T1 or C7, T1. Uh, it stopped the body of T1, but he had a compression fracture caused by a vertebral fracture causing inflammation of the nerve root right below the level that was imaged. Missed on a radiologist's husband. His question is, isn't there overlap? And the truth is, we see more overlap in the lower extremities than we do in the upper extremities. The upper extremities, I think the overlap is a lot more minimal because things seem to be a little bit more refined. But could it be? Yes. But do you want to be careful just in case because it could be either nerve root because of overlap? Yes. You still don't want to omit it, right? So how many of you are not going to write, please include axial imaging for T1, T2, if you ever order cervical MRI again? Yeah, well, there you go. That one's a no-brainer. We all heard about this study, and everyone keeps on asking me for this reference, but now it's in your slide deck, so you have it. In the mid-'90s, they decided to do a study, Jensen's group, where they took MRIs of a completely normal patient population, meaning no back pain whatsoever. Well, when they did that, and even though it was 98 in the, in the study, we'll use 100 for round numbers. So we did 100 patients that have no back pain whatsoever, and we did MRIs of their back, and guess what? 52% of them had disc bulges and herniations at at least one level. 38% of them had disc bulges and herniations at more than one level. But that's the normal population. The flip side of this study was even funnier because they did like 118 patients that had back pain. And guess what? 50% of the studies had abnormal, had abnormal findings, and 50% of them were completely normal imaging studies. So this is Vegas, baby. You got a 50-50 chance of having an abnormal finding on an MRI, whether you have pain or not. It all comes down to your examination, and this helps fill in the pieces of the puzzle, but it doesn't give you all the answers. So the corollary study to this was someone came out and said, well, I bet as you get older, you get more abnormalities. And the answer to that is, well, yeah, that makes sense. But my favorite one was, they went back and said, okay, let's take a population of these people that had normal MRI, abnormal MRIs, but were asymptomatic 10 years ago, and repeat their MRIs and also look at them clinically, because we predict that if you had a disc pathology 10 years ago, that you're going to have a greater chance of having back pain 10 years later. You know what the study results said? Not, not, not exactly. According to that, you had a less of a chance of having back pain going forward 10 years. Now, this is not really a realistic way of looking at the data, but the data is saying that having a disc herniation and being asymptomatic is a protection against back pain. Try saying that fast. Now, think about this. You have a disc pathology on an MRI. 
and you say, okay, let's do an epidural. Does that make sense? If the epidural makes the pain go away, so now you have an asymptomatic patient, is the disc pathology still there? Of course it is. We just created a situation like this. So not all pathologies on MRI are symptomatic. Remember our 27-year-old woman? This is her study again on the left. This is what I like to call the worst MRI I have ever seen in my clinical career. This is a 68-year-old guy who actually was retired and build, builds houses for Habitat for Humanity. So the story here is this guy has every pathology that you've ever heard of on an MRI all in one place. Spondylosis, canal stenosis, foraminal stenosis, um, spondylolisthesis, antroherniations, posterherniations, facet hypertrophy, you name it, it's on this study. Perfect. So I get a call from this surgeon who we've had a really good clinical relationship with. We've taken some of his patients where he couldn't find a pathology and we did, or some of his post-op patients and that were still symptomatic and cleaned them up. So we had a great rapport with him. So he calls me up and says, Dave, have I got the challenge for you? Here I go. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm up for this. So the patient comes in and he tells me about his pain. He can point to a single focal area of pain right here, medial buttock area. The only thing I can find on the clinical examination is the gluteus medius trigger point, literally. Everything else is like normal, so I'm like shocked that I have this patient with this complex back and I can't find a single abnormal finding on my clinical exam. So I cheated again and did my evoke potential and guess what? All those were normal too. And we looked at every single nerve root from T11 to S1 bilaterally. So I basically said, look, the only thing I can find is gluteus medius trigger point. So what do you do with the gluteus medius trigger point if that's what the patient has? Inject it. So you inject it, his pain goes away. Now it came back a couple weeks later, less severe, so it got injected again. But then he was back building houses for Habitat for Humanity. So the worst MRI that I've seen in my entire clinical career essentially was for an asymptomatic patient. You know what the only outcome of that was? Everyone laughs when I tell them, but the only thing that came out of that was the surgeon never sent me a patient again. <laughs> so inflammation of a nerve root can be quite painful, radiculitis, and you won't see it on an MRI. And just because you have a pathology on MRI doesn't mean it's symptomatic. There was a study, and like those of you who know me, because there are a few people in the room that know me, know that my practice over the last 15 years became 90% workers' comp. And if you ever have a terrible patient population to work with, that's a terrible patient population to work with. One in 10 says thank you and appreciates what you do. Four or five disappear into the woodwork, and four or five will curse you for fixing their problem. So here's the problem we have with workers' comp patients that I would constantly say. You get a patient who comes in, and you ask them what the problem is, and you're asking them to describe their pain, and they report it as, well, I have three herniated discs. You know, great, I know that, thank you. But tell me about your pain. Well, I have three herniated discs. Thanks. You can do everything to completely eliminate their pain, and their function is completely normal as if they never had a problem, but that patient still feels like they've been injured by the job because somebody told them they have a herniated disc, and they think it's caused by work. Well, these guys did a study and it turned out that in the workers' comp scenario, as soon as you tell the patient you have a disc herniation, it led to greater disability, greater cost of care, greater likelihood that they never go back to work, even though it might have had nothing to do with their pathology or their symptoms. Yeah, at the end, please. I don't, I, I tried not, we don't typically think of using MRAs, if you will, for evaluating our musculoskeletal pain patients, although it is possible, and I will tell you that I've seen my share of ischemic events or hemorrhagic events uh, causing headaches, or the occasional dissecting abdominal aneurysm that presents to your office, or a kidney problem that, dissect, that presents to your office with back pain. So it is possible. So you may have the need for doing one of these studies. But I put this up here for another reason. I'm sitting here working at my computer one night. My wife is on the phone with a relative, and I'm hearing the conversation to the side about every time this person turns their head to the, I think it was the right, they have a syncopal episode and drop to the floor. It's predictable. Turn your head to the right, out like a light. They were being treated for two years for having a somatoform disorder. I'm listening to the complaint alone because the patient's story is what's most important, right? Thinking, wait a second, I've seen this before. This is vertebral basilar insufficiency. Remember the vertebral arteries? They come up on either side of the spine and they kind of give you collateral circulation through the circle of Willis to uh, give circulation to the brainstem and what cerebellum. 
So it's set up that if you, when you turn your head all the way to one side, you restrict the blood flow from one vertebral artery, but that's okay because you have the cross circulation from the other side, collateral circulation, so you're still okay. But if you completely block one of those vertebral arteries, what happens when you block off the opposing one? You go out like a light. So I got on the phone with her neurologist the next day and said, here's what I think is going on. He said, well, I never thought of that, but it's plausible. So he says, let's do an MRA. I'm thinking, cool, I haven't seen one for this yet, but I'm game. Can you send me the study? So I was like, sure. So the next day, well, she has the study done the next day, and the next morning, FedEx is at my door at 7.30, so I put the CD in the computer, I pull it up, and son of a gun. When you look at the vertebral artery on the left, which is actually the patient's right, it's nice and patent. You look at the one on the right, which is the patient's left, it's kind of obliterated. I'm thinking, man, I diagnosed this over the phone. So I've never seen one on an, MRI, on an MRA. So I needed to rely upon the radiologist to tell me what's causing that now so we can determine what to do. So I'm on hold to talk with the radiologist, and they faxed me over a copy of the report. And you know what the report said? Normal. So he looked at it. He amended the report to say possible. And then he said that, well, we didn't call it because we sometimes see artifact in that area. Yeah, but artifact in the area where the differential diagnosis is rule out vertebral basal insufficiency, and you see the pathology on 17 different slides in that image, in that series, that's not an artifact. So they said, okay, we'll do a CTA. And he said, and I'm, I'm mechanically inclined. I like taking things apart. You know, I spend my time in my garage working on cars. So I'm thinking what he said I loved. He said, look, I'll tell you what. We'll put the patient in the imager, and since she has the simple episode, when she turns the head to the right, we'll put her head, put her imager, turn right to the right, and do the study really quick. So we'll really get a handle on this. I'm thinking, my kind of guy. So they put, the, they put the patient in the imager. They turn her head to the right. She has a syncopal episode. So their radiology tech, or whatever they call it, gets a little nervous about that. Uh, so they, what they did is they pulled her back out. They put pillows all along her left side, so it turns the whole body to the right. So now her head's turned to the right, and they put her back in the imager. So what we have is a neutral done CT scan with everything tilted to the, <laughs> to the right. The good news was we actually found the pathology anyway because the, the vertebral artery on that one side was actually being put under tension because it turned out she had a reversal of the cervical curve. So we were actually able to do something very conservatively to kind of reverse that and then take the tension off the vertebral artery. So we stopped the syncable episodes every time she turns her head to the right. But we can't undo two years of repeated ischemic events. So that was my real severe pathology easily overlooked. But the other side was fine. The other side was fine, but it was only the one side that was stretched. Yeah, it's collateral circulation. Except when you turned your head to one side, it would cut the that would cut off the circulation on the one side. Except when you turned your head and you cut off the side that was working, because when you turn your head, you cut circulation off on one side. So when you turn your head to that one side, you had none working because you only had one to work with. Okay. So, how about functional MRI? I loved functional MRI when I first saw it because if you think about it, this is what's given us a lot of information about what's, what the different parts of the brain are that are involved in that rich experience that we call pain, remember? But we don't see it too often in clinical practice yet, do we? I'm still waiting. And there were some interesting studies that came out a couple of years ago where they tried to predict what certain pain pathologies would look like. I don't think we're there yet. But I wanted to mention it, so hopefully we'll get there. Any of you do traumatic brain injury work, TBIs? All right, so those, guys, those of you who do traumatic brain injury work, do you do um, um, diffusion tensor studies? Diffusion tensor studies are really cool because they look at basically mapping water molecules, essentially. So what you end up with is you can visualize, and that's what this image is up here, all the different sort of anatomical connections between the different parts of the brain, which is really cool. But when you combine diffuser tensor studies with functional MRI, what you end up with is look at the neuronal projections. Do you know what that does from the standpoint of showing you how pain signals are processed in the brain? That's huge. But unfortunately, this is future technology, even though this research was done in 2006. So we're 10 years out, and we still don't see it in clinical practice. I don't know what's taking them so long. All right, we all know what CT scans are, correct? CT scans are like 
an x-ray on steroids because you get to spiral the x-ray around the patient, correct? They've become the gold standard for looking at all sorts of different pathologies because of their, in, their ability to detect differences in tissue density that are less than 1%. So CT scans are our friends, yes? All right, this is a CT scan. It looks much like the MRI, doesn't it, when you have slices corresponding to views, except we have the lateral slices, the sagittal slices, if you will, over here. We have the axial slices here, but now we also have coronal. So we added another series of slices to the tomato that goes from front to back. All right, I'm mechanically inclined. I can take anything apart, figure out how it works, and that's what I've been doing all my life. That's kind of why I'm probably a good diagnostician. But I have no artistic abilities whatsoever. You can say my artistic abilities are autistic. My, my nine-year-old nephew has much better artistic ability than I do. If I handwrite, you can't read my writing. He can, I mean, he's great. Well, I can take this apart, and I'm used to looking at them, but a radiologist looks at these all day long, almost visualizes all these slices kind of combined to an image in their brain. Well, that requires sort of an artistic view that I don't have. But you know what they have that's really neat for people like me? 3D CT scans, so that the computer puts all those slices together and gives you a three-dimensional image now that you can rotate around and access. It's like stripping off all the patient's soft tissue so that you got a model of the spine. And it works really well for looking at cardiac pathologies too, doesn't it? You can do 3D CT reconstructions of essentially anything that you do a CT scan on. So this is like CT scans for the rest of us. How much radiation, extra radiation, do you think this gives to the patient for dosing? Zero. It's a software algorithm. So what is it, what's the extra effort to write, please include 3D on the CT scan? That might charge the insurance company a few extra hundred, but you get something that's really neat. So when you look at this CT scan interpretation, this interpretation said mild degenerative disc disease at multiple levels. Well, you're thinking that could be a major problem, yes? But when you look at the image themselves, you can see that, wait a second, I mean, there are some mild template changes, but for the most part, Everything here looks golden. Maybe a little spondylosis at L5-S1, but the foramen are nice and big and open. And this patient has long pedicles, so they probably have a lot of space in that spinal canal. I'll call that a pretty normal study, in spite of what the interpretation says. So here's the comparison views between a 2D and a 3D CT on the same patient, strangely enough. Isn't it a lot easier to make out what the pathology is looking at the 3D version? All right, let's take a vote. What level do you think, aside from all the degenerative disc disease this patient had, if you had to pick out one level that you think is more symptomatic or likely causing this patient's symptoms without even me telling you what the symptoms are, what would you go by in the imaging study? Let's see. Five, four, let's see. That's five, four, three, two, one. So L1, L2 doesn't look too bad, but actually T3 looks even worse. And you can look at the focal point of muscle spasms here, cocking the spine over to one side. Turns out this patient had a full-blown compression of, at L2, L3. But the CT scan made it stand out like a sore thumb on 3D imaging. Here's one for you. How are we doing on time? We're doing okay on time, so I'll tell you this whole patient's story. Because this patient's story, I think, is extremely important. You guys are all familiar with surgical procedures, correct? Have you ever heard of ray cages or the anterior, anterior lumbar interbody fusion that uses cages, like a cage fusion? So what you do is you go in through the abdomen and you essentially draw the, drill these two little plugs out of the disc area, which makes a little notch in the two end plates, and you put in these two titanium cages and you pack it with materials to promote bone growth. And that's how you do your fusion, correct? How many cages did I say you use at that level? Two? How many cages do you see on this, this x-ray? One. Well, that's because several weeks post-op, one of the cages that this patient had implanted in his spine fell out of the spine. You think that would be a problem? Hmm. So the surgeon said, uh-oh, we're going to have to bring you back in and stabilize that area. So the cage fell out of this patient had a fusion, L3, L4, L4, L5, correct? Because here's L5 and L5 is one is fine. What level is that one cage missing from? Three, four. So they bring the patient back into the OR, and they do a posterior fusion to stabilize it, but you notice what's missing from that? It's the level below. How would you like to be the surgeon who pulls up the post-op x-ray and realizes he fused the wrong level? 
after he was fusing the patient for the second time already because his first fusion was done so poorly that the cage fell out. So of course they had to bring the patient back yet a third time to finally stabilize the posterior fusion to include the level that was now missing a cage. And if you read the surgical reports on this patient, there is no reference to any of this other than the patient doesn't seem to be responding well post-surgically, so we have to do something else. Okay, so the CT scan post-surgically now looks like this several years later. Let me blow this up for you. What does that look like too, other than a mess? Look at all the increased hyperostosis and bone growth in the posterior region. Look at how much bone growth is now compressing the IVFs, resulting in a severe foraminal stenosis. See that? All that extra bone growth. So what this patient has now is nerve root compression inside the nerve roots where they're exiting caused by bony compression, especially at L4, L5, and L5S1. Is that patient going to have pain? Yeah. Is that patient going to have all sorts of other problems? Yes. So remember, and those of you who sat through the, the pain pathophys lecture, remember I used the example of a spear in the foot? This is like having a ballistic missile in the foot. So when you have an active pain pathology, isn't it a lot harder to manage an ongoing pain problem? So when you give this patient opioids, are opioids going to re relieve his pain completely? No. Might they take the edge off? Maybe a little. The problem is the patient wants more and more because the pain management is really not that great, but it's at least a little so that it helps. So he is not a compliant patient with respect to his medication agreement, is he? He takes more than he's supposed to have and he's constantly running out in half the time. So he went through three physicians who kept on discharging him because he was a non-compliant patient. That's all he cared about. You're not listening to what I'm saying. You have to go see somebody else. So somehow I ended up with the patient. Well, I saw him on one morning and looked at the imaging study, did my evoke potential, and was horrified because he has active compression inside those nerve roots, inside the fusion. You know what? I've been in doing this for 25 years, and I didn't know what to do for him. So I'm making phone calls to colleagues all over the country saying, what the heck would you do? Because I don't even know. And in the meantime, he goes to the ER. The ER and he tells the ER doc that I'm his doc now because the other person discharged him. And I was just a consulting physician. I was never taken over his case. So the ER doc calls me and says, I'm admitting your patient for, to rule out MS. It's like, MS, have you seen his imaging study? So he, I emailed it over to him, and he calls me back and said, okay, we're just going to admit him overnight for pain control, but he's getting discharged in the morning. A week later, I'm having dinner with my wife, and we, we keep the television on watching the news during dinner or something, and lo and behold, there's my patient being arrested as the armed OxyContin bandit because he's robbing pharmacies at gunpoint with a non-loaded gun just to get OxyContin to try and ease his pain. Was it his fault that he got there? I'm, I don't really think so. So here I am on the phone with the prosecutor and the judge the next day trying to give them this information, hoping they're going to find some way to be lenient on this guy or do something for him, but I never could find out what happened. And they wouldn't tell me because I technically was not his physician. So I don't know what happened other than the fact I know he went to jail, but I don't know what happened afterwards. So I tell you these things and I show you these things because it happens a lot more than you think. And I'm not trying to scare anybody. I just want everyone to think twice, because we can prevent this. Myelograms, not much to be said here, except some people consider it the gold standard for surgery. I will tell you that I've seen patients with such tight canals that you can't imagine anything would ever get through. And yet, that has nothing to do with whatever their complaints are. So I don't know that the myelogram is considered a gold standard either. And if it works so good, how come I get half, half of my patients with post-surgical back pain? So. Bone scans. Everything we've talked about so far has been a structural study. Yes, you know, structure. And there's a difference between structure and function. So bone scans add something to the mix because they say we're going to add in physiology. So we're going to give the patient a radioactive molecule, if you will, a tag or a trace that now gets metabolized through the body. So the whole idea here is we give the body something that can be metabolized and we look for where it's metabolized. Anything that's metabolized at a greater level gives you a hot spot. And anything where you're seeing less metabolism, if you will, gives you a cold spot or an infarct, and that's how you identify pathology. So I'm a spine guy, so I have spine examples. So here's a patient that, if you look, has an artificial disc at L5S1. Remember how quick and how, how they came to the market and left 
so fast we almost didn't realize that they were used as a treatment? Remember that? Well, think about this. Here's our case scenario. The patient has long-term degenerative disc disease, so they have spondylosis at L5-S1, meaning you've decreased the disc height, but you've also shrunk the facet capsule. So now you come in and you're going to say, oh, we're going to give you a new disc. It's going to be good as new. We stretch that facet capsule and jack up the vertebral height to a normal height. You just created a facet arthropathy. If that was a fusion, it would be inside the fusion, but it's even worse now because you have a movable segment. And that movable segment has more movement than the patient had before this started to begin with, which is going to do what to that facet joint? Aggravate it even more. So the guy ended up with an, ooh, a really bad inflamed facet, if you will, on both sides. If you get inflammatory cytokines, they can leak out of a facet joint. They can also leak out of like a disc tear. But if they're close enough to the nerve root, like we talked about the cross talk with nerves when you get inflammatory cytokines and neurotransmitters, you're going to inflame that nerve root as it's exiting the IVF. So this patient has a radiculitis and a facet inflammation. So we injected the facet joint and did a TFASI, and the patient's symptoms got dramatically better, but how long did it last? Not that long, because they still have the pathology that's going to re-aggravate it again. So the insurance carrier said, well, we don't agree with you because the surgeon said, oh, it's perfect, everything looks great. So they agreed to do a bone scan. Notice on the bone scan, right up here, you see those two white bright areas at the L5-S1 facet joints lighting up like a Christmas tree? There you go, right here. So I guess we called that one right. And this patient was like the nicest guy on the planet. He and his wife were such wonderful people. I felt so bad for him because he passed away before we can get that corrected because he died of complications that you can argue were associated with the physio physiologic stress of being in pain and some of the medications he was taking out, which created a whole other line of comorbidities. Ultrasound. You know what I like about diagnostic ultrasound? Even before they came out with the more modern stuff, it puts a tool in the hand of you as that you can use to treat or diagnose and treat your patients right there. So you're the one that has the information. You're the one that has the clinical skills to fix the problem. So this is grand. So the examples I put up here were this is one from an orthopedic surgeon colleague that was injecting an AC joint. And here's one from a podiatric surgeon friend that had diagnosed plantar fasciitis, and he was using it to inject the plantar fascia. I love this stuff. But now, and, and we used to have, when I first started in pain, one of the docs that was in the practice did a lot of musculoskeletal pain pathology. So if you really want to have some fun, by Waldman's textbooks, The Uncommon and Common Pain Syndromes, it gives you a whole multitude of different musculoskeletal pain syndromes that you can treat locally in your office. So now they have these new imaging devices, which I think are right out of Star Trek. The, late, the newest one, well, the first one was this little one that looked like a StarTac phone. Remember the old StarTac flip phones? With a little handheld imager about this size? The TV commercial for this was they showed people all over the world in the most remote places you can possibly think of saying, let's take a look in all these different languages for these crazy health problems. I thought that was huge. The latest one that just came out, which I think they're pushing for FDA approval because it comes out of China, it's a Bluetooth device about this big. That is the entire ultrasound device, and it connects to your iPad or iPhone wirelessly. How cool is that for doing musculoskeletal pain stuff in your office? So. I'm dying to play with one of these, but no one has given me one to play with yet. And since I don't have the clinical practice right now to use it on, it would be really stupid to buy. Can I just get through this and I'll get some questions at the end? All right, we've talked about structure. I want to hit function for a few minutes because I think this is extremely important. So the most common functional tests that we do to evaluate our musculoskeletal pain patients are what? EMG. You guys know what we do with an EMG? So basically, here's the, here's the skivvy on an EMG. What you do is you stick a needle in the muscle because the needle, the, the, the needle, the nerve to the muscle acts like a calming effect. Remember, I like to give really easy examples. So think about the nerve being like the guy in the head of a study hall making sure that everybody in the room is quiet. But he gets a cell phone call from his girlfriend. So while he's talking on the phone, a few people in the back of the room start to talk. Well, that's the first sign of losing control, right, or denervation. So that's when you see something like, get this thing to change. That would be when you see an occasional fibrillation potential or a positive shark wave. Then, as more and more people start to talk in the back of the room and the instructor is getting more and more concentrated on the phone call, more and more people start to speak. And that's when you get a little bit later denervation or later loss of control, fasciculation. 
And then now that he's having a full-blown fight with his girlfriend on the phone and not paying attention to what's going on in the room at all, and everyone is yelling, screaming, and throwing stuff, now we're getting really all sorts of crazy things called complex repetitive discharge and myotonic discharge, meaning we've totally lost control on a long-term chronic pathology. That's one part of it. The next part of it is, now that you have the needle in the muscle, that one single nerve fiber can't do all the work. It's like a tug of war to get that arm to move. So what he says to all his buddies around him is saying, come on, guys, help me, let's pull. So under active contraction, you get a recruitment pattern which shows that we're kind of getting other muscle fibers all in line to fire at the same time. And you should have an active recruitment pattern, which is greater electrical activity. If that pattern is diminished, well, that's a sign of a neuropathy or a myopathy. Make sense? So how do you know what nerve level it is? By the muscle that you test. So this is a common group of muscles that you can test with respect to the lower extremity. Well, what irks me is, those of you who have seen, those of you who do EMGs, I hope you're doing this, those of you who have seen EMG reports know that we always localize things down to one level, so to speak, like L5-S1. Well, is that the L5 or the S1 nerve root? Could be either. And the reality is you could make it a little bit more specific because what you do is you choose where you should structure the study based on an examination of the patient to evaluate a group of muscles that would give you the information about that patient. And then even if you get what you think you needed, you could usually take it a little extra step forward by doing one extra nerve and one extra muscle to maybe come out and get that extra precise nerve root localization. So, you know, the, the idea here is, well, if we see something in the tibialis anterior, but we don't see it in the rectus femoris, but we see it in the extensor allicus longus, but not the gastroc, you'd be able to come back and say, hey, that's L5. See how that works? It's like a little puzzle to put it together. Well, the same thing happens. So this is like a cookie-cutter study with respect to the lower extremity. Well, guess what cookie-cutter studies do? Miss pathologies because you're not necessarily looking in the right place. This is a group of muscles that is commonly used for the upper extremity. Same problem. All right, how about the nerve conduction study part of that test? Basically, you look at sensory studies that involve on every patient median ulnar radial, sorrel for the lower extremities. How many nerves do we have in the lower extremities that we're only doing one? And what's the nerve root innervation for the sorrel? S1. What about L5, L4, and other nerve root levels? Well, the truth is there are other studies you can do. So here's a good example. I used to see a lot of patients when I was in Jersey from a podiatric surgeon who was a great friend. So he would send me this um, rule-out tarsal tunnel syndrome case. Well, I would do not only the tibial nerve for nerve conduction study, but I can also do medial and lateral plantar after the bifurcation. And then if I found out that one of those was abnormal, I would use an inching technique, so I would keep on getting the probe closer and closer and closer until I got to the point where the entrapment was. So I'd send the patient back and say, it's before or after the bifurcation. By the way, it's right here where the X is. And notoriously, he would love it because he can open that up, and I'd be within a millimeter or two away from the pathology every single time. We can use these studies to get far more information. It's a tool at your disposal. It's just a matter of how you use them. You guys familiar with evoke potentials? Very few. Evoke potentials are harder and harder to get done these days because nobody wants to pay for them anymore or pay for them at a reasonable rate. So that's the problem. When I started in practice in 1990, Medicare was my lowest payer, and they reimbursed anywhere between 350 and 650, depending on the complexity of the study. Do you know what Medicare reimburses for an evoke potential today? 56 bucks. It costs more in supplies to evaluate that patient. So there aren't too many people doing them, unfortunately, unless they're paying cash. So what's nice about evoke potentials, we use the segmental evoke potential, so every single nerve root, or every single nerve that we do has a nerve root at one particular level of correlation. So I can come back and tell you if that nerve root is inflamed, compressed, and to what degree, because I can quantify that pathology. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that that's what made me famous with when I started in practice because I was able to essentially say, look, here's what the pathology is, here's how bad it is, this one needs surgery, this one can get an injection, this is what the injection should be. And I was like drawing a bullseye on the target, so that has always been my secret weapon. So here's a good case. And here's a patient that was involved in a motor vehicle accident. We can wrap up with these cases and we'll cut it out, but we'll still have time to get to the, the what do you call it, the keynote session, so you'll be okay. So here's our patient. He was involved in a motor vehicle accident. And the running joke is this is iatrogenic because a physician, this is a car dealer, and the physician was driving the car at the time of the accident, test driving it. So it's an iatrogenic problem. <laughs> True story. So 
All right, he get, he, what his complaint is, he has like this knife-like, sharp-like pain with the slightest movement of the cervical spine. And it's posterior neck and shoulder pain. He can point to it. It goes all the way down to his arm. So they do an MRI, and the MRI comes back and says degenerative disc disease with disc bulges over here at C3, C4, C4, C5. Where's his pain? A little lower, don't you think? It's also going into his fourth and fifth digits, by the way, so it's following the C8, T1 distribution, ulnar nerve distribution. So they MRI really didn't correlate with the patient's pathology. So they tried to do an EMG on the patient. And this is six months out now we've gotten to, or three or four months out. Well, if you have a chronic pain pathology and it's been going on for a long time, what do we get? Neuroplastic changes, sensitization. So this patient really doesn't like having a needle stuck in him at this point. So he could not tolerate the EMG. So someone decided that they wanted to torture me with this patient instead. But I get to use lidocaine under my stimulation sites when I use an above potential, so I can make the test completely pain-free which I come close to at least. So what I did is I found out that the patient has an S1, S1, a T1 radiculitis, inflammation of the nerve root at T1. So remember that I've seen this before, makes it easier to recognize the second time? Well, first of all, I went back to look at the MRI and guess where the slices stopped? They stopped at the body of T1, so they didn't give you the T1, T2 segment, which is down below the slices. So I couldn't necessarily tell, but the good news was that segment at least looked relatively clean. But my idea was, I've seen this before. It's a vertebral fracture. And the reason why the guy can't move and he's stuck like this is because the slightest little movement, which you know with a fracture, causes what? So, you know, epinorium, the, the um, what is it? The, not the epinorium, the, the, um, the outer layer of bone that's highly nerve-innervated. The periosteum. There you go. See, I'm stuck, still stuck on nerves today. The periosteum is highly nerve-innervated and quite painful. So I've seen this before. I recognized it. So I wanted to order a CT scan to find that fracture, and the insurance carrier wouldn't approve it. But they would approve a bone scan. So I said, okay, at least it'll show something lighting up that area. So here's the weird part. The guy is stuck like this, right? So they go to put him in the scanner, and he can't lie back. So you know what they do? They put pillows under his head and shoulders. Well, that lifts it off the scanner. So what does that do? Invalidates the study. So the only thing they came back with and said, well, Need studies inconclusive, but you have arthritis in your right ankle. <laughs> All right, here's the last one. Basically, here's a 21-year-old college student that's complaining of posterior shoulder pain. Okay, so primary care doc sends the patient to a orthopedic surgeon. The orthopedic surgeon basically says, "Oh, we'll do an MRI of the shoulder. We'll look for a rotator cuff problem." Guess what it was? Negative. So he said, "Oh, maybe it's coming from your neck." So he did an MRI of the cervical spine, which was. Negative. So he said, let's do an EMG. So the EMG came back and said, carpal tunnel syndrome. I kid you not. So the kid now is given a cock-up splint and sent for physical therapy of, for carpal tunnel syndrome. Did I say he had any symptoms in the hand? He had posterior shoulder pain. This is his only complaint. So they did an EMG of the upper extremities that used this classic cookie-cutter study, and I think they overinterpreted the nerve conduction study to come out with the carpal tunnel syndrome diagnosis. But notice, this is a cookie-cutter study. I've seen this before. So I'm asking the patient about his shoulder problem. He's telling me, I said, okay, tell me about the, your hand, your fingers, your wrist. And he says, I have carpal tunnel syndrome. He said, I got that, but tell me about the symptoms. I have carpal tunnel syndrome. Teaching moment here. I opened up Waldman's textbook, flipped to the pages, common pain syndrome, of so carpal tunnel syndrome, and said, here, read this. He says, I don't have that. I said, well, that's what I'm trying to tell you. He says, well, why do I have to go, why was I going for physical therapy, and how come I'm wearing this, cock this, this splint? I said, don't ask me. I didn't prescribe it. But I figured we had a good teaching moment, so I'm going to work with that. I flipped in the same book to the pages for suprascapular nerve entrapment and said, this is what I think you have. And strangely enough, right on the page, there's a kid carrying, showing a, like a backpack because that's probably what innervated what innervated. So I did a needle EMG of the supra and infraspinatus, and I actually did an evoke potential that allows me to test between the, the branches of the suprascapular before and after the bifurcation, and came back with, yes, it's an entrapment distal to the bifurcation only affecting the suprascapular nerve, I mean, the, 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 the supraspinatus, which is an extremely easy one to treat, very superficial. I basically put an X on the spot and sent them back to his primary care doc and said, inject here. And by the way, here's the pages from Waldman's text. So the guy injects it, and their recommendation at that point was, stop using your backpack. 
you know what? I did not get paid for, from the insurance carrier. The same insurance carrier that paid for the physical therapy, that paid for the MRIs, and that paid for everything else, didn't pay me because they came back and said, well, you didn't do a technically appropriate electrodiagnostic study. It's like, are you kidding me? I examined the patient. I tailored the study to the patient. I came up with a specific diagnosis that identified the problem, that then guided treatment that resolved the problem, and everything's in the record. What standard did I not live up to? Dude, it's frustrating, isn't it, working with the system? So look, our take-home message is the clinical reliability of any diagnostic test is never 100%. It's all about the clinical examination. You know, we can have a study that's technically deficient and not able to evaluate what we're looking for. We can have a study that was done the wrong way and has its own limitations because it can't identify it. So objective clinical examination is more important than anything else. So with that, I hope you found this, this session helpful. Um,